0: All righty, Grace Church, Medina East Campus, nine fifteen service. How you guys doing today? Good. good, pretty good. All right. Well, my name is Dan, and I lead student. <laughs> my name Dan, and I lead student ministries here uh, at the Medina East Campus. So me uh, and my wife and my awesome team, man, we just have the privilege of of hanging out with uh, students from sixth through twelfth grade. Uh, In a variety of environments, we just hang out and and have a blast uh, hanging out. Like Clark said, uh, if it's your first time here or if you're a little bit newer, we just count it such uh, genuinely an honor and a privilege that you take time out of your schedule to come check us out and hang out. So we hope you feel welcome because you really, truly are welcome and we're glad that you're here. We've been in a series called uh, Jesus Come and See. Uh, And what we've been saying uh, in the series is that this is really an invitation. Come. Come come it's an invitation to an investigation see What we're saying is, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, have certain preconceived notions of Jesus. In fact, we all really come to the idea of Jesus with a kind of a hand-me-down version. And and so maybe you were raised in like a a certain kind of religious tradition. Uh, Maybe you've heard things, you know, on YouTube or you have certain friends who kind of have told you things about about Jesus. Maybe your parents have given you some kind of different versions or ideas about what what Jesus is all about. And so maybe that hand-me-down version is accurate and maybe it's not. But what we're saying is, man, let's, let's just take kind of a, a reset and really look, tr- try to really seek to discover what Jesus is actually all about. And the way that we're doing that is in a, a first century uh, eyewitness account. We're looking at the gospel uh, of Matthew. And so Matthew was a dude that actually personally, <laughs> personally knew Jesus. He knew him. He walked around with him. He saw how Jesus operated. And Matthew wrote down what he saw. And, and, and it is recorded for us uh, in the gospel of Matthew. And there's Thousands upon thousands of copies available for us to to take a look at and discover what Jesus is all about. So that's where we're going to be in Matthew. In fact, we've been in the series for a while, and we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 25. So if you got uh, a Bible, if you want to blast it open to 25, or if you have a device, uh, if you want to fire that thing up, get there. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's no big deal. We actually have some for you uh, in the chairs uh, underneath you there. And you can find Matthew 25 on page 694. And we also say this every week, if you don't own a Bible, like straight up just don't own a copy of God's Word, you can take that black Bible and make it a gift from us to you. I think it is super duper important that you have a copy of God's Word, so please just just take that, write your name in it, it's yours, we're glad for you to to have it, okay? And so while you're getting there, I just want to share kind of a fun thing that happened to me uh, the other day. All right, so me and my wife, were at our life group. Uh, We here at Medina East think that, um, you know, it's really important to get involved in biblical community, and that's how we express biblical community uh, here at Medina East. We have these things called life groups. And basically, it's kind of a smaller group of people that get together, hang out, encourage each other to love and good deeds, kind of get into each other's lives. And a big part of life groups every week is that we have what's called, like, just kind of a guided Bible discussion, okay, just sort of a a really cool time to get together, circle up, and and discuss God's word. And a lot of times before the Bible discussion, we have what's called an icebreaker, all right? This is normally just like uh, an interesting or kind of a funny question to kind of get the juices flowing, you know, get the conversation juices flowing. And so uh, the other day at our life group, the, the icebreaker question was, what movie character best represents you? All right, and so we go around the circle, you know, everybody's ready to have the discussion. What movie character best represents you? So we go around the circle, a couple people in, my friend Matt said Gandalf the White best represented him. And if you know Matt, you'd be like, 100%, Matt is Gandalf the White. And then we kept going, you know, somebody said uh, Hermione from Harry Potter, somebody said Luke Skywalker, somebody said uh, Marty McFly, you know, my, my good friend, uh, <laughs> my good friend said uh, Anna Kendrick from Pitch Perfect. Okay, so the, the, you know, the icebreaker is going pretty good, we're kind of getting loosened up a little bit, people are laughing, it's getting good. And then we get to me, all right, the, the, it kind of gets around to the circle to me, and I said... This guy, this is me, all right, this guy best represents me, and if you know me well, you know that that's accurate, that's basically, in in the very depth of my heart, I'm just a crotchety old man, and I just want to yell at people and wear a trench coat, and that's everything that I am, all right, so this is is, uh, Howard Beale, all right, from this, like, 1970s movie, Called Network, and in Network, it's a classic movie. This guy Howard, he, he's a newscaster, and he basically just goes totally crazy. And on live TV, he starts criticizing everything he sees in culture and in society, which is really my life's ambition: is to just like be on live TV yelling about things. And so this scene right here, he's going completely like he's just really going off the deep end. It's raining. He walks to the to like the newscasty place or whatever, and he blasts into this very famous uh, monologue. Uh, about about how crazy the culture is. And so just to invite you into my world a little bit, into the depth of my heart, I would like to share with you this famous scene that kind of represents where I'm at. This is me right here. And here it is. This is what he has to say. Famous monologue. He says, I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do. And there's no end to it. We know that the air is unfit to breathe and the food is unfit to eat and we sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like, Everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house and and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller. And all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radials and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest, I don't want you to riot, I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and about the the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you gotta get mad. You gotta say, I'm a human being, my life has value. And I'm like, all right, I will, thank you. And so it's interesting for me, you know, as I watch this movie, right, this old movie, Every time I watch this scene, I just get so hyped up and I wind up when he gets to this crescendo here and he says, I'm a human being, my life has value. I like, I like start breaking, I get all teared up. I start breaking down in tears, all right. Because for me, honestly, I think there's a lot of truth in what he's saying, right. I think even in our culture right now, this is, you know, this was in the 70s, but I think it still kind of holds true that there's some crazy things happening in our world right, and there's war and rumors of war, and it's, it's not even weird to hear about a shooting somewhere at a school or a bombing somewhere at a concert, right, and there are all these things happening, and we're like, what do we do with this? And then we even look a little bit closer to home and we look at our jobs and the, and the kind of maybe the corruption that we're seeing at our companies or, or the things that are happening in our schools or the things maybe that are even happening uh, in our homes. And then we get into even into our own heart and into our own lives, into our relationships with uh, our spouses or with, uh, you know, our parents or our kids. And we're like, man, there's this complex mixture of, of interworking confusion and, and the expectations I have about a li- the, the, li- the way of life and, and the way that things actually are. and and, and in this complex where I'm trying to figure all this stuff out, all I can do is just say, man, at the very core, what what do I have? What is the meaning of life and why am I here? How do I even justify my existence? Uh, I mean, I know I'm a human being. At least, least I I mean, I think my life has value, right? I'm a human being. My life has value. And I think, honestly, These words really resonate, right? These words resonate with us. We think intuitively that this is true. We believe it. Like I know at the core, somewhere deep down, I'm a human being. My life has value. I think they resonate, but we might not be exactly sure why. And so that's what I'd like to explore in our time together today as we look uh, at Matthew 25. What is it to be a human being and and how does my life have value? So Matthew 25, if you want to get there, that's where we're at. And basically at this part uh, in the gospel, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, all right? He's, he's done an, incre- uh, an incredible amount of work. He's done a lot of really crazy, sweet things. And now we're kind of getting to the end uh, of this narrative. And, and he has his disciples. And the main theme is like, just be prepared, be ready, okay? Be, keep, keep watch, the hour is, is coming, like be, be prepared. And he has his disciples together. And picking up in verse 14, he says, and again, it'll be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them, and so when he says it, he's referring to a theme that he's been laying out for the entire uh, for the entire gospel, and the it. He's referring to is the kingdom, the kingdom of God, all right, or the kingdom of heaven. This is God's rule and God's reign, the way that things ought to be in light of the reality of who God is, his character and his nature. Jesus, his primary message when he walked this earth was that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he's telling uh, his disciples this parable. It's like this little story trying to explain what the kingdom is all about. And so he says, again, my kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. And to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. All right. And so when we see uh, bags of gold there, I think some of your translations probably say five talents, two talents, one talent. And what this really is is just a measurement. It's like a weight, an amount of gold. And a talent would be equivalent to like 20 years worth of wages. And so what we see is that this master who's going on a journey obviously is rich, right? He has the funds and the resources uh, available to just be dropping, like making it rain bags of gold on these, different, on these different servants, right? And so he's rich. And then we see also, just even in this little section, that he's wise, right? Because he appropriately allocates funds based on the ability and the experiences of his, of his servants, all right? So we got guy with five, guy with two, guy with one. And, you know, I find a lot of times when I'm reading some of these parables, I, I get kind of caught up on, like, which, which character is which, and it gets a little bit confusing. So, in order just to help us out for the remainder of our time, I gave them names. Okay, so, guy with five, I named him Clive. Clive with five, ain't no, ain't no jive. Guy with two, Stu, you do you. All right, Stu with two, you do you. And then... One with one, all right? So we got Clive, Stu, and Juan, five, two, and one, all right? Everybody, is that making sense to you guys? I, lo- I love you guys. I like what's happening, and I love you. Okay, so here we are. And the man who had received five bags of gold, Clive, he went at once and put his money to work. So we see, dude's pretty industrious. He doesn't waste time. And he takes these five talents, or these five bags of gold, right? Five bags of gold times 20 years' worth of wages puts it to work, and gained five more bags. Good, nice work, 100% return on investment. So also the one uh, with two bags of gold, right? Stu did the same thing, gained two more. Nice work, Stu, 100% return on investment. Industrious, hardworking, good good call. And then uh, the man who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and, and hid his master's money. And so Juan's coming in with a little bit of a different approach, right, just... Dig a hole in the ground, slap the money in the hole. That's how he, that's how he works, okay. After a long time, uh, the master of those servants returned uh, to settle accounts with them. And so we see that what's interesting, uh, you know, about the master is that he, he was willing to lead, to entrust these, these funds, these resources to his, to his servants for a long time. He dropped these bags of gold on him and then he's like, I'm out. You guys take your time, you know, do what you're going to do. I'll give you the time you need. To, to get it done. But he, when he comes back, he comes back to settle accounts. And so we see that he had a plan to, to figure out what his servants did with these funds and these resources that they, that, you know, that they were entrusted with. Okay, so that's where we're at. And, and it says, the man who had received five bags of gold brought, uh, brought the other five. And he said, master, check it out. You entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I gained five more. So Clive, again, bringing it in pretty simple. He's like, you gave me this many Now I have this many, right? Pretty simple, 100% return on investment. And we think, wow, this is really, you know, this is a good deal for, for the master, for everybody involved. This seems like a pretty reasonable situation. And the master responds like this. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. And so we see right out of the gate that when this master sees this response to this generosity, when, when the master comes, and, you know, and, and Clive is like, dude, here's what you gave me. Here's how much I got. Ta-da. The master says, wow. And, he, and what he's primarily stoked about, it seems, is that he is faithful. I mean, he says it twice. Good good, and faithful servant. You've been faithful with what I entrusted to you. You've been faithful with a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many things. And and really, I think we start to get an insight into just how rich and how uh, powerful and how wealthy this this master is because to him, five bags of gold is few things. He's like, oh yeah, you, you really hooked it up with this chump change. Now let's really get down, all right? I'm gonna really hook you up. And then he says this, come and share your master's happiness. And so we see that this master, in addition to being rich, right? The ability to just drop bags of gold all day long on whoever he wants. In addition to being wise and appropriately kind of deciphering what would be adequate for his different servants, we also see that he's generous and that his primary desire ultimately is to discover faithfulness and then invite those who are faithful into his joy, all right? And so we're getting a very clear picture in this, in this short parable that Jesus is presenting about his kingdom, that man, the master, is primarily interested. His heart is to include and to invite people into his joy. And so we see that there's something about the resources that the master has that are infinitely more deep and more profound than just uh, monetary wealth, right? That, that he to him, five bags of gold is chump change, But his desire is to invite people in to an even greater and deeper and more uh, abiding relationship with him. His primary goal, his primary focus is to invite people in to his joy. And that's what he did. Based on Clive's faithfulness, he's like, you worked and I want to invite you into my joy, into something deeper than just uh, monetary gain. All right. And then the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, uh, you know, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. Again, 100% return on investment. I was faithful. I worked hard. I put the money to work in the way that was appropriate and good. And his master replied verbatim, the exact same words that he said to Clive. He says to Stu, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And then he says, come and share your master's happiness. And what's so fascinating is that, man, there's a pretty big distinction between five and two. And so we would think, man, maybe the master would, you know, adjust the way that he interacts with this guy with two based on, you know, based on the fact that that there's a, there's a different level of return. I mean, there's, there's a different amount of uh, you know, of return. But what we see is that it's the characteristic of of fidelity that is rewarded, not merely uh, monetary success. All right, and so we could see it as clear as a bell. This this is significantly more in terms of what we can see about the amount of bags of gold. But but the guy who who made two more, even though it's kind of a, a less deal, well, the the fact that he was faithful is what uh, gets him invited into. His master's joy, right? More than just money, more than just being hooked up in a way that's obvious to see and observe, but into a way that is deeper and more abiding, invited into his master's joy. And so what we see again, Jesus, as Jesus is telling this story, right? He's a master teacher, he's a master storyteller, and what he is showing us, as clear as you can possibly say it, is that this master, right? This master is rich, he's generous. He's wise. He has the desire to invite people into his joy. He has the, the resources to do that. And it is his desire. And it fills him up with, with an overwhelming uh, and abundant elation to invite people into his joy. That's the nature and that's the character of the master. All right. And so then we get to, we get to Juan. All right. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you're a, I, I knew that you're a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And so what Juan says here is really uh, he has some kind of complete knowledge of the master and his character, right? He calls his, his master's character into question and says that I, have, I actually have a read on you, bro. I, I got to lock down on exactly who you are. And, and this word hard uh, is from a Greek word that really means like unrelenting, harsh, merciless, stern, And so what he's saying is based on a preconceived notion of the master or based on maybe a hand-me-down version, right? Maybe I heard something about you from somebody and somehow maybe, you know, you're really rich and wealthy and I don't know. I know that you have harvest where you haven't sown and gather where you haven't scattered seed. And so Juan makes this assumption and he makes this assertion about the character of the master that is not commensurate with everything that we've seen about the master thus far in the story. Nothing but joy and a desire to invite people into his joy. Lavish generosity is what characterizes the master. And so when Juan says, yeah, man, I know you were stern and harsh and mean, and that does not correspond to what we've seen in this story. He has misunderstood the nature and the character of the master. And he says, so, uh, you know, based on you being a big jerk and everything, I was just really freaked out and I hid your gold in the ground. So here, here's what belongs to you, okay? And so we see, again, his whole The way that he interacts, the way that he uses the gifts that he has been given, right? A bag of gold, like 20 years worth of wages. He just digs a hole and buries it in the ground. And he's like, here, here's what belongs to you. And so, again, we we have to get this really clear that the master is lavish. He has the desire to invite people into his joy and it's obviously not based on the amount of blessing that he bestows on them. What what invites people into his joy is their willingness to interact with his character as a lavish and generous master. And and Juan just isn't into that. He's not into the idea that, man, this master wants to to engage with me. He, he, He clearly has the desire and the capacity to invite me into his joy, but he's not into it. Based on a false apprehension, of the character of the master, all right? And so his master, based on this faulty view, replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed? You, de- you deliberately uh, misrepresent my character and my nature based on some limited perspective of who I am? Well, okay. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, uh, you know, I would have received it back with interest. He, he sees through uh, this servant's deception that like, dude, your, your logic actually proves that you don't even believe that because if you really thought I was as hard and mean and stern and bad as you're claiming that I am, you would have at least taken enough effort to put some money uh, in the bank so I could have received it with a little bit of interest. And so he sees that it's not even that he thinks he's hard and stern, it's that he just doesn't even think about him at all. He has no desire to even interact with the master in a real way. And, and, and because he's not willing to interact with the true nature of the master and because he's, he's not even, all he can do is just kind of make up some false claim about who he is. As a result of that, the master is like, okay, uh, not, if that's how you want to interact to interact. And if that's how you want to take my character and my nature, the character and the nature that wants nothing but to bless you and nothing but to hook you up and invite you into my joy, then I will allow you, based on your faulty view, to interact with me in that way. And this is what happens. He says, take the bag of gold from him. Take the bag of gold that I have graciously bestowed on Juan and give it to Clive. Hook it up with with Clive. And so we see the master doesn't even he isn't even concerned about getting this wealth for himself. It's not even about his desire to like hook himself up. It's about his desire to bless other people and to and to see the desire that the other people and the servants that are willing to receive his blessing have, all right? And then he says whoever has will be given more and they'll be given an abundance. But whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. Right? And so we start to see, man, this is pretty intense. The servants who who have resources based on their uh, faithful stewardship of the resources that they have been given, right? the ones that have uh, something to show for what they have done with, with what they have been given, they'll be given more. But, but, he, but the guy that earned nothing based on a, a faulty view of the master, even that, even that amount will be taken away. And then Jesus says this master kind of finishes it up by saying, and throw... That worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? And so we're like, dang, pretty harsh. In fact, everybody say harsh. Harsh. Yeah, pretty harsh, right? And, And the reason why it's harsh is because there are serious implications, serious implications of entertaining a faulty view of a master, right, of saying, oh yeah, everything that is really true about you is that you're good and kind and gracious, but, but man, in my, from my perspective, I don't want to interact with that, and I don't want to have anything to do with that, and as a result of that, as a result of entertaining that false view, we are left with a separation. In fact, uh, we see that we, we could almost put it like this. It's an expulsion due to a false view of the master's character, right? That as a result of not interacting with his love and his, and his generosity, this, this servant gets kicked out. Right? And what's so fascinating as I've been looking at this is that this actually isn't the first time in the Bible when we see somebody kind of kicked out of a good situation based on their refusal to interact with uh, you know, the grace and, and, uh, and the generosity of, of uh, an authority, In fact, all the way back in Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, right? There's an expulsion due to a false view of God's character all the way back there. And so God hooks Adam and Eve up with the garden, and he wants to have a relationship with them. But they refuse to interact with him in a way that corresponds to his nature and his character, resulting in separation from him. And eventually they get kicked out of the garden. And what we see is this story in Matthew, right, and kind of the narrative that it tells and the, and the kind of the flow of interaction with the master is very similar to what happens in Genesis in the flow there. And we see that this, this narrative and, and this flow of how people interact with God actually kind of repeats on and on. But just all the way back in Genesis, I'm just going to geek out for like 2.5 minutes and then I, I promise I'll be done. But like... You know, back, all the way back in Genesis, we see that God has abundant resources, right? At the very, at the very core of who God is, he's the creator of everything. And so he obviously, is, he's, the, he's the father of all things that are good, every blessing. He has every possible resource. Just like in Matthew, the master has abundant resources. And we see this kind of similarity in the flow of this story. And we see in Genesis 1.28 that God entrusts humans with resources and he desires fruitfulness. He says, be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. It's his desire to interact uh, with with the people that he created in order to to see them flourish and thrive. At the core of who God is, is a desire to see you grow and to engage with his uh, benevolent, gracious gifts that he just bestows. And we see in Matthew that, man, the master entrusts service with resources and desires fruitfulness. And we see that uh, in Genesis, humans must work to cultivate the gift, right? God places Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so work is good and it's given to us by God, but we have to embrace the gift of work and get to work. And we see that, again, the servants must work to cultivate the gift. And then there's this really crazy shift in the story where God's character is called into question. So there's this deception and the very character of God is called into question. And the serpent says, is God really cool? Does he really wanna hook you up? Or maybe he's a hard man. Maybe he's just kind of stingy and he wants to hold you back from really experiencing the fullness of what you were created to experience. He's a hard man. You know that's his character. And in the same way, we see that in Matthew, that, that the master's character is called into question. I know you were a hard man harvesting where you haven't scattered seed. I know you're a meanie. When everything in the story shows nothing but a gracious, kind, benevolent desire to bless people with the gifts. And then we see a misinformed fear and hiding. We we see that Adam chooses to entertain this idea of God as a harsh dude, and as a result, his eyes are open, he realizes he's naked and he hides. He's afraid and he hides. And then the same way. Man, we see Juan hide his, based on fear, he says, oh, I was afraid, and so I hid. And so we see in the way that Jesus is telling this story, it's, it's kind of calling to mind the fact that, that a result of a misunderstanding of the character of the master results in this fear and this hiding. And then ultimately there's, there's an expulsion due to a false view of God's character. And we see that uh, in the Matthew story as well, right? And this is all very interesting and geeky Audi, you know, we like tables here. Uh, we like Bible fact tables here at Medina East. But the big question is, even though that's interesting, is so what? What does that have to do with me? Like, what is okay, this, this is interesting and there's this narrative thing and, and you know, and, and these are all related or whatever, but so what? What does that have to do with me? And I'm here to tell you guys, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, that I believe this has absolutely, absolutely everything to do with you with everybody in this room, because here's what I know about you. Okay, without any question in my mind, we all have been exposed to the reality of what this life is, right? We're all trying to figure out what's going on externally, what's going on internally, what's happening in my heart. And each and every one of us has been exposed in one way or or, or another to the things that are happening. And each and every one of us has also been given the gift the gift of our humanity, the gift of our life, the gift of, of being created in God's image. And so every single person in this room is a part of this story and, and a part of this flow. Whether we recognize it or acknowledge it or not, that we all have been uh, you know, given the, the opportunity to, per, to participate in this story. And at the very core of who every single person is in this room. Is, 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 is an incredible gift and, and, and is an incredible blessing that God has bestowed. And this, is what, and this is where it starts. All the way back in the very first book of the Bible, it says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so we all have the potential to base our value on what God says. It's a bag of gold, all right? The, 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 the desire that God has to share his nature and to share his love and to, and to bless he is evident, is manifestly evident, and is manifestly evident in the lives of every single person in this room simply by virtue of your humanity. The fact that you exist as a human being is an example that God loves you. He wants to bless you. He created you in his image. That's, that's why you exist. It's to to be a a representative and a a person that interacts with God. And it's an incredible gift. It's a bag of gold. It's an incredible blessing and bag of gold that God has created you in his image. But what so often happens, what happens in my life, what happens in the lives of everybody at, at one point or another and in various ways is that we, we feel hindered or, or we feel like uh, afraid to embrace that or, or somehow there's this, there's this breakdown that happens and we, and we don't wanna fully engage or, or embrace the nature uh, and the character of God, our, our true master. And I think some of the things that happen are maybe misunderstanding, right? Just like, just like Juan Like maybe things just don't compute for you. You know, you've observed certain things about God and you're like, well, maybe, you know, I don't know. I can't figure out why bad things happen to good people. Why did this death occur? Why did I lose this job? Why did these bad things happen? Why is it that so many people who claim to be religious are always kind of obnoxious and hypocritical? Why is it that, you know, when I started to put my faith in Jesus, things got worse for me? You know, and it's like all these complex things that, that kind of muddle around in our brain. And and maybe you have a picture of God that's harsh or distant, and you're like, man, I don't know. I just I, I'm not I'm not interested. I you know, there there's a, I have a view of God and I'm I don't want to I don't want to waver from that. And so you just let it be a misunderstanding. But I'm here to tell you that, man, man, God loves you. <laughs> I'm just telling you that 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 the limited perspective that we all have, the limited perspective that I have is actually shown to be not the full view. Right, that, that the Bible actually teaches that, his, his, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and that there's something so much bigger and more profound that we can interact with if we allow ourselves to go beyond the misunderstanding. I think another way that we get hindered is sometimes by comparison Right, and, and maybe it doesn't really say this in the, in the text, but maybe Juan, you know, he was looking at at Clive and Stu, and he was like, "Man, they got five and two, and I just got one one measly bag of gold. Like this isn't enough, right?" And so I think, you know, maybe for some of us it's easy to think, sure, like the person with the perfect family can think that God is, is you know, desiring to bless them because they have a perfect family. The person with the perfect marriage, you know. Oh yeah, oh, oh, you think God is, is loving and wants to bless you. That's really easy for you because your kids don't have any health problems or whatever, right? And so I think a lot of times what happens is we get caught in this comparison trap. And, and again, you know, we we it's hard to, to kind of uh, to sort through and to think of, of all the different ways that God has, has given people different things and whatever. But what I can tell you, honestly, is that what we have all been given and, and where the absolute baseline is, is that every single one of us has been, given, has, been, has been given the gift of our humanity, has been given the gift of our life, has been given the gift of being created in the image of God. That's true for every single person in this room. And so don't, go, don't get caught up in the, in the comparison game because we have all been uh, uniquely made by God to represent him, made in his image. And I think finally, you know, a lot of us, it's just inactivity. You know, maybe it just takes too much effort, too much thought. You know, like, I, I, you know, I don't know, man. God, is there a God? I don't know. There's a lot of different religions and it's, it would take a lot of effort and work to, like, sort through that. And I'm, I'm pretty content just thinking, like, there's some kind of force or there's, I believe in a higher power and, that's enough for me. And so we take what has been revealed to us by God about his nature and his character, this bag of gold that God has given us, and we just say, eh, I don't know. I get this. I kind of have this feeling in my heart that there's something, but I don't really want to put too much effort and time into that. And so we just bury it over um, in the ground somewhere. But it takes work, right? It actually, We were created to, to, to pursue God and to seek and to put the effort and the energy into, into seeking what he's all about. And your life has value. Your life has value. You are a human being. Your life has value. And I'm here to tell you that, honestly, Jesus proves that your life has value. And that this isn't just some delusion or some cutesy thing to say at church to, like, get you motivated on a, on a like, wintry day, right? But that God actually really loves you and that your life actually legitimately has value. And the way that God proves that to be true definitively and decisively is in his son Jesus Christ. All right. And so John 3.16, a very famous verse that says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I'm here to tell you that John 3.16 is a bag of gold. And in this moment, every single person in this room has the gift of their humanity, the gift of their life as a human being. And every person in this room has been delivered. A nice, neat, big, heavy bag of gold that is John 3.16, and it is in your hand. He has it, he's delivered it to you. And he loves you. He sent his son to die to forgive you, right? And, and, to, and to have a relationship with you. Not just to get nitpicky about some religious thing, but to engage with you as the human being you were created to be. And that is true of every person in this room. You've been given a gift. You've been entrusted with a bag of gold. And it's John 3.16. I'm here to tell you that at the absolute deepest level and the most fundamental reality in, in, the, in the universe is this right here is that God is love at the, at the most clear and basic level of all of existence. There is a God who loves you. He exists as love. He has existed eternally as love. And out of an overflow of his love and desire to have a relationship with you, he created you. You are an object of God's love. The reason why you exist is to be a recipient of his love and a participant in his story. And even though that that's true and that's sweet, the Bible goes on to say that all of us have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, which is terrible and scary and sad and bad. That, that man, no matter, you know, no matter how good I am or how whatever fancy pants I am or whatever, I am ultimately condemned to a life separate from God because my sin has rendered me incapable of interacting with the perfection that is God the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord and so he who was without sin jesus he who was without sin became sin for us on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of god All right god loves you he sent his son to live a perfect life to die a criminal's death on a cross to forgive the sin of humankind he raised three days later in order to prove that he really is who he claims to be. And he invites you into a relationship with him based on his love and based on his grace, not based on being, you know, not, not based on anything other than a strict, a, just a total straight up desire to have relationship with you. That is, that is the, the, the reason that we can know without any question that, that as human beings, our life has value is that Jesus proves your value by dying on a cross to invite you into his love and into a relationship with him. And I would tell you that at the fundamental level, God is waiting right now. Again, the story from from Genesis all the way through to the last book of the Bible in Revelation is a story of a God who doesn't want some religious version of you, who doesn't want some kind of prude, uptight, like just get it together religious robot. Right, God doesn't want you to just drop some kind of religious pill or learn some kind of religious lingo. God wants to have a relationship with you. And he's waiting. Look, this is Jesus talking to you. I believe that these words are alive and active right now and that Jesus is here. And this is what he's saying to you right now. Look, I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus wants a relationship with you. You are valuable as a human being, and he wants to engage with you and to, and to invite you into his joy. And I'm here to tell you, the tr- this is the truth. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. He's knocking, and he wants to have a relationship with you. You're a human being. Your life has value. Jesus proves that you have value on the cross, and he invites you into a relationship with him. So I'm going to invite the band uh, up, up at this time, and as they do, I, just, I would like for you to really consider the, the implications of this, right? I believe that what I'm saying is true, that the Bible teaches up and down and left and right that as a human being, you have an incredible gift. You have a gift of of a potential relationship with God and you have that potential realized in the person of Jesus and that you can engage with him and enjoy an everlasting experience of his love and his blessing. But it requires that you actually engage with it and embrace it, right? All of our lives have value, but that value is derived from the good, kind, beneficent master, right? Our value is derived from God, but we're invited into his joy. We're invited into the potential of an incredible experience of his love. And so for the people in this room that follow Jesus, and, you know, I know not everybody in this room follows Jesus. You know, we're just some, some trying to figure it out or, or just trying to investigate. And if that's you, we're just like so stupidly grateful that you're here. You know, because the reason why this church exists, honestly, is to just give you an opportunity to, to connect with Jesus, right? That's why we have these chairs and this carpet and all this stuff, like uh, these pedal boards and subwoofers and stuff. The reason why we have all this stuff is because we want you to have an opportunity to engage with the reality Jesus, And so if you're investigating, that's sweet, and we're glad that you're here. But for those of us that follow, man, imagine the implications of really embracing the gift that he has given you, right? For people that follow Jesus, we have embraced the gift of our humanity. We have embraced the gift of salvation. But I'm here to challenge you to think, man, what other ways has God blessed me? What other things, what other resources has God hooked me up with? And how can I utilize those to engage with his generosity and to get to work? And to put the good things that he's put in my hands to work, to, to recognize his love and to be faithful, right? And to imagine what it would be like to hear at the, at the end, man, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now here, I'll put you in charge of many things. Come, enter into my joy, right? And so consider, I'd like for you to, to consider that. Maybe this, as we worship and, and throughout the week, just think, man, what, in what ways can I really engage with the generosity of God? But for those of you uh, in this room who are investigating, right, I would ask you, I'm begging you to please consider the fact that the reason why you exist, maybe nobody's ever told you this before, but you are a human being. Your life has value. And the reason your life has value is that you are created by God to be a recipient of his love and to interact with his his joy. And, And I would ask you to imagine what it would be like to allow the love and the grace and the mercy of the God of the universe into your heart to embrace your identity as a human being. Right? Imagine entering into the joy of the one who made you and who died to save you. You are a human being. Your life has value. Embrace it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being who you are and doing what you do. Thank you for the gift of our existence and the gift of your son and the gift of grace, God. Bags of gold. Help us to embrace what you've given us, what you've given every person in this room. You've given every person in this room the opportunity to engage with you. You proved that that is your desire by dying on a cross. So I just ask that the reality of that gift penetrate the hearts and the minds of the people in this room. Lord, liberate us all into an experience of your love and your grace. Thank you for who you are. Praise you for what you do. You are the king. Amen.